Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey folks, just a quick reminder regarding Other People Premium. Sign up for Other People Premium right now and get access to every single episode of this podcast. The best way to do that is to get the Other People app. The Other People app is free. Get it at your favorite app store. Once you have the app, the most recent 50 episodes will be waiting for you free of charge. And then if you want to stream the deeper archives, you can sign up for premium right there within the app. It's really easy to do. It's cheap. It's great. Listen to my conversations with authors like Cheryl Strayed, Tom Parada, Jonathan Lethem, Roxanne Gay, Edwidge Dantica. The list goes on. Other people premium. Sign up for it. Support the show. Do a good thing. Access conversations with writers. Hundreds of conversations, dozens, scores. It's incredible. Other People Premium. Get the Other People app. Uh, have I explained that well enough? Okay, let's start the show. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is almost always done at the last minute. This is something you can listen to with a neutral facial expression. Hello out there. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, focusing on this, or at least uh, focusing some of your attention on this program, this, this transmission, this broadcast. Is it a broadcast? I have no idea. I guess it is. It's a podcast. I don't know what I'm doing. My guest today is Monica McClure. Her new uh, poetry collection is called Tender Data or Tender Data, depending on how uh, you like to pronounce it. You say data, I say data. The collection is out there now from Birds LLC, a fine independent press. Hey, if you need some new uh, earbuds or headphones, go to tweakedaudio.com and enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Get yourself some earbuds. What do you think of that? Get some headphones. 
You need some new ones. The ones you have are disgusting. Have some pride. Tweakedaudio.com. Enter the offer code other people. O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. So, uh, as many of you know, last week's episode, the uh, Michiko Kakatani episode, which will live forever in infamy, uh, was uh, the April Fool's Day show. As it turns out, I was not talking to the actual Michiko Kakatani, head book critic of the New York Times, and a uh, past recipient of the Pulitzer Prize. I was talking to Laura Norton, a musician from uh, Venice, California, who also happens to be the mother of my friend Mira Gonzalez. So that was fun. Many of my listeners fell for the prank and were uh, traumatized, which made me very happy. I took pleasure in their confusion and uh, in their anguish. And uh, many of these listeners who were fooled on April Fool's Day took the time to uh, respond to me, either via email or on Twitter. They wanted to express their feelings in the aftermath. Uh, it's very difficult for them. Very challenging experience, but uh, you know, I thought I would uh, share with you some of their reactions in today's uh, today's program. What do you think of that? So let me read some reactions to the uh, Michiko Kakatani episode, the infamous. Michiko Kakatani episode, my conversation with uh, Laura Norton. A listener named Jonathan writes, actually, uh, let me get some music on here since we're dealing with trauma. A listener named Jonathan writes, uh, always loved her reviews, but now it turns out that Michiko Kakatani is super rad, totally charming and candid. <laughs> so some of these, uh, some of these tweets and, uh, you know, some of the things that I'm reading to you are coming from people in real time as they listen. Others are written after the fact. A listener named Jacob writes, No talk of how Kakatani began as a critic, honed her craft, ascended to such a high position? Did I miss something? <laughs> A listener named D.H. writes, I hate you. A listener named Tyler writes, I trusted you, you bastard. A listener named Carolina writes, What a jerk move, damn you. Nothing made sense, but I thought, why would he lie to me? A listener named Rebecca writes, I made it 30 minutes thinking that Kakatani was way cooler than I thought, and then Twitter ruined it for me. I saw the tweets giving it away. Now, I'll never know how deeply ashamed I should feel. A listener named Joseph writes, I will forever accidentally believe that Michiko Kakatani's mother slept with Jim Morrison. A listener named Chris writes, I muttered, quote, this is bullshit when Kakatani said she hangs out with Ian McKay and now feel relieved to know that McKay has other friends. A listener named Jeff writes, something about the tone of your discussion seemed weird right off the bat. When you began the conversation, 
talking about her long hair, I Google-imaged Michiko Kakatani long hair on my phone as I listened. The results did not return any pictures of an Asian lady with freakishly long hair. I thought, hmm, maybe she's super protective of her image and or her hair is some mythical secret only people, quote, in the biz are privy to. A listener named Tom writes, While listening to your interview with Michiko Kakatani, I was imagining a Facebook post linking to the interview, tagging every friend I've ever hated Michiko Kakatani with, writing something profound like, You know, I sure do spend a lot of time hating Michiko Kakatani, but then I hear an interview like this, where she comes off as just a normal human being with a good sense of humor that I can even imagine myself being friends with, and I feel really bad. Now that Facebook post will never happen. I love you, Brad Listy. So, there you have it. That's a sampling of uh, some of the uh, feedback I got on the April Fool's Day episode, the Michiko Kakutani episode, a legendary episode in the annals of the Other People podcast. And uh, needless to say, uh, I do hope to uh, one day have the opportunity to talk with the real Michiko Kakutani. If uh, for no other reason than to verify just how long her hair actually is. So Michiko, if you're listening, I'm here. I'm ready whenever you are. I want you to be spiritually right. And uh, I want the opportunity to uh, know more about you. My guest today is Monica McClure. Her new poetry collection is called Tender Data, or Tender Data. It's available now from Birds LLC. Birds LLC is the publisher. It's a fine independent press. Uh, I figure it's time that you hear my conversation with Monica. Should we just do that? Let's do that. Here she is, guys. This is Monica McClure. Um, I'm at my office in the garment district. What do you do? I mean, do you work in the garment industry? <laughs> uh, sort of. I work for a trade publication um, that publishes industry news about the fashion industry and some kind of fun stuff, but nothing really glamorous. But I get to feature like emerging designers and go to fancy press events and stuff like that. So is this something you had an aptitude like for before you got the job, or have you learned about like fashion and design by being on the job? I worked in fashion, sort of. I worked for the startup when I was like right out of grad school, I think. It was kind of, it was like a one guy operation, like this ex like Wall Street banker guy, like started a custom tailoring men's shirt service and it was like really sexist and he would send me around to like businessmen's offices to show them patterns and like measure them and it was really degrading why um, what ha- like okay, so okay. I, can, was- I can see how this could be like i'm seeing how this could be um you know unpleasant but like give me some specific anecdotes like you're going into like the offices of like goldman sachs bankers with like a tape measure and yeah and what, yeah, are, they, like, what are they saying measure, to you a book of like um fabric samples well like, rich men are really into having their own um, clothier, and it's something they, like, talk about to their friends at work. And so they 
almost seem to want it to be like as exhibitionistic as possible. So they really want you to go to their office. So like their secretary has to call them and say like, your tailor is here. <laughs> um, and it's like even better if their tailor is like a 24 year old woman. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I would go into actually sometimes I would go into universe. What is it? Universal, um, the production company, like Universal the Studios. No, but it wasn't because that's not in New York. No, I don't know. They might, they, they might have a New York branch. I'm sure they have like offices. Yeah. There. Okay. Yeah. So I would go in there, and uh, there was an A and R guy who was my client. That was okay. He would give me CDs and stuff, but most of the time it was like financial. Do you ever they 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 hitting on you? In, like, really strange ways. Um, sometimes it was more blatant than others. Like, I did get checked into, like, meeting a guy for drinks under the auspice of me showing him some fabrics or something. But he was, like, a younger kind of, like, upstart in the real estate industry. And the older men were, like, weirder. Like, I remember on that thing that turned into a date, like... <laughs> He said, um, I just really love America. And then, like, I still hadn't, like, measured him or anything, so I had to leave. Um, but, like, with the older guys, it was weird. It was almost like... Wait, wait, he said, I really love America, and then you just left? Like, you hadn't... I, I don't understand. Like, you're out at a bar, and you're supposed to be measuring the guy? Yeah, or just, like, talking about, like, what his wardrobe needs were. And then, as we were small talking, he... I don't know, maybe on the second drink or so, started talking about, like, presumably his politics, but he led with, I just really love America, and I knew what that meant. <laughs> um. <laughs> That's the way to get a girl. You know what this makes me feel? Like, this makes me just feel anxious about being a man, because it just seems like... I'm sorry. Or, no, but I mean, are all men this awful? Like, you know, like, I guess it's a certain kind of man, but it's just... It, it, it gets to be uh, exhausting because the evidence is so uh, voluminous and damning when it comes to the behavior of men in our world. Do you understand what I'm saying? I completely understand. And maybe um, maybe just the bad news gets more airtime, or maybe it gets more airtime on social media. But I, I start to find uh, my, I start to find myself just like wilting a little bit, just like oh god. Yeah, no, it's the default. But you know, you can comfort yourself by. Knowing you're the exception. Well, don't give me too much credit. I was, I was, I was, I was thinking to myself that I don't. I'm not opposed to the idea of having like shirts tailored. Like mm -hmm. I, that's a nice thing to have things that fit because a lot of these shirts for men, like I find that they they're like too long. So like you can't wear them untucked. They look like ridiculous. Like you're wearing like a dress. Gosh, I just featured a brand called Untuck It. I'll have to give you their information. Yeah. They Find the proportions for a shirt that doesn't have to be worn tucked in. It's like the perfect length to still look kind of professional if it's worn untucked. See, I have I'm onto something. This is a need in men's in uh, the the world of men, but I, you know, so I'm not like you know, in and of itself, I'm not opposed to like having shirts tailored, especially if you're some sort of businessman who's got to wear suits and you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. But, like, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and uh, she works for a corporation that will go unnamed, but they have just uh, announced, like, essentially, like, a succession plan for their CEO and blah, blah, blah. And, like, there was a competition within the company, and she sort of knew, like, everyone sort of knew exactly who was going to get it based on looks, because there seems to oh. be, yeah, there seems to be at this company, like a like a 
a set of criteria by which chief executives are measured physically before they have any chance at all. Like they all look like Ken dolls. And do you know what I'm saying? It's kind of a weird thing. Like there is that sort of. Weird, but I guess I also sort of enjoy that men are being objectified in the workplace to that degree. (laughs) (laughs) It's about time. I mean, no, I don't want that for anybody, but it's a nice kind of counterbalance. Well, no, I think it happens, especially in these like hyper competitive corporate environments. Like it's like the guys, the guys feel pressure to be fit. The guys feel pressure to have that tailored suit. The guys feel pressure to sort of like, you know, have it all or whatever. I think that's a thing. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. And the thing I was going to say about like the different um, treatment I received from the older men who were just as concerned about their appearance was, you know, very dandy-like, you know, which is to be expected, but almost like, like they would compliment my hair the way like my gay friends would, you know, and right. I, I knew that they were only stepping into that, like outside of their like hypermasculine like roles at work, like in that moment. Well, but that- uh, no, I get I get what you're saying, but I think there's also something that happens when you have a lot of money where there becomes like this object fetishizing and this, um, you know, you have all this disposable income and you got to put it somewhere. And I think it's like, there becomes like this competition. It's like the Brett Easton Ellis thing. Like, you know, the competition for brands and having the right, like accoutrement and like the right uh, jet and all this shit. And like, it's, it can sometimes manifest itself in, um, you know, aesthetic concerns like that. Like, it doesn't seem crazy to me that some sort of hyper-masculine, "Quote unquote hypermasculine group of guys would have like a similar ability to um, evaluate a woman's hairstyle that might uh, parallel the way that gay men would talk about it. Does that make sense? I don't know if I said that articulately. Yeah, no, you did. Yeah, um, it's like well, fashion is so interesting because it is this language that's impossible to keep up with. It's a language of like objects and symbols um and it almost becomes like a way i don't know it almost becomes competitive i guess um yeah definitely had experience with men who were like you know it's like that american psycho opening scene right like just <laughs> how much like cathexis is put into these little, little objects that symbolize status um yeah, and even as I was working in that industry, I, I couldn't keep up with it. Though I do really, I love fashion. Oh, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, because this is the thing. Like, I think, like, the, the service level reading of it would be that, like, okay, you work in the fashion industry and you deal with all these all of these superficialities. And as, like, a counterbalance to that, you write poetry. Like, that could be, like, one line of logic or whatever. But that's an oversimplification of fashion. And I try to resist that because I'm a guy... Um, I, I have in the past, you know, said disparaging things about the fashion industry and how silly and trivial I think it is, but, um, that's not true. Cause like everybody's got like, it, like what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to get at is that I think a lot of guys try to disavow having any interest in or, or sense of style of their own, but like that even that in and of itself is like an expression of style. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you can't escape it. Like yeah. one, one way or another, I've got a sense of style and I've, sh- you know, I, I should, right. I shouldn't try to deny it. I should actually think about it a little bit and then the other thing is that the people who are creating um you know fashion trends people who design this stuff like they're real artists and like their work is everywhere and 
it affects all of us in a way that I think any artist would envy. Um, so I don't know. I don't want to disparage them. It is a, it is a cool thing. Looking nice is, I like when people have a cool sense of style and they're pleasant to look at and their clothes are interesting. Yeah. No, I think the problem is this idea we have that there's a sense of style and then there's not, but it's actually not like that. Like what you said, you can't escape fashion. You're either like participating in its milieu or you're like resisting it, but in that way you're responding to it. Right. Like you're still in conversation with it. Um, but, so what's so what's your sense of yeah, style? Like what do you have like a can you define what your style is? I always try to. It changes a lot and I'm usually very precise about what it is. Like last summer I think I said my style was Lolita Lost in the Ghetto. <laughs> um it, it's always like that specific. Sometimes it's like Molly the American girl doll, you know, traveling in Europe or you know. No, but that's actually interesting because, I mean, to be able to break it down and like these are decisions you make and then, okay, well, actually, I'll, I'll rewind a little bit. Do you go out and like buy new outfits and and then come up with like the, the language that you just gave to me after the fact or do you first conceive of the style via the language and then go try to find the clothes to match it? It's like, usually something I see first. Okay, so you see the you see it out in the streets and then you try to emulate it? Yeah, out on the streets or in the book or just running across some earrings in the store, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anywhere. Okay. But I think that's interesting to kind of like break it down into language. I've never yeah, tried I've never tried that. I'm like I'm like I'm like guy who wears the same thing every day. <laughs> <laughs> that's something to be. That's a category. But it's not I don't know if it's uh it's something that one should aspire to. I just I, I am made anxious by like the decision making process. I just want to like look good and blend in. I don't want to stand out. I've talked about this before with people, but I think some people are yeah. more more comfortable being noticed for what they wear. Like, are, do you fall under that umbrella? Like, do you like to walk into a room and have everybody be like, "Whoa, look at her!" With yeah, her. but that also deflects attention away from me. In a way, it deflects attention away from. Um, what I might have to say or what I might have to explain myself, you know, because you're already presenting something that people have to interpret. Like, what is she wearing? Like, why those choices? Uh, you know, because you've grabbed their attention with the choices in clothing that you've made. Right. So then that's, you know, it, that, it, it would scare me, honestly. I've talked to Dan Majors about this. Do you know the poet Dan Majors? Uh, like, and I don't know him, but I've heard. Okay, yeah. He, like, wears what he calls a uniform every day. That's what, that's what I call my uniform. Yeah. And and he really, he wants to be kind of a blank slate, I think is how he's described it. And I want to tell a story with my clothes, so maybe those are the two kinds of people. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I think it's just... I think it's just like having like the, the energy that one would have to expend. Like for me to be good at this, you know, not having like a supernatural aptitude for it would just require a lot of energy, uh, not to mention like money and stuff. And like, I just can't like, I can't do it. I mean, like you have to get new clothes every season and you have to be like looking at this stuff. And like, 
I'm just focused on other things, you know? So like when I think yeah. when, I, when I go to my closet, I'm like, all right, I just want to look fine. I don't want anybody to be like, oh, he looks like shit. Or I don't, yeah. want, I don't want people, you know, I want people to just, I just want to sort of blend. I like to blend. I don't want to stand out. But. Yeah, I understand. I wish that I could wear more simple kind of androgynous clothing. Um, but for some reason, I have this complex. Like, I believe that I am too feminine or, like, my body is too feminine to wear clothes that are more masculine or androgynous. Yeah, but see, I, I don't know. I think you should own own being, own own being feminine. I mean, I don't know. I guess own whatever you are. I mean, if you're androgynous, then be androgynous. But, um, you know, like it's okay to be feminine. Yeah, it's like, this is what's so great about fashion, though. Like we we can actually respond to these like fears we have about ourselves and these anxieties about our identities with things. Like there are things out there that we can put on, you know that allow us to live in whatever identity we want to live in. Yeah, that's true. It sounds like super like, um, like I'm proselytizing for fashion right now, but no, 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 no. It's making perfect sense to me. I think I feel similarly. And I, I feel like I, I wish I had like a better natural sense of style. Like maybe like one day if I have tons of disposable income, it'll suddenly become like a fascination for me. I think that might have something to do yeah. with it. Like if you I have, mean, like, if you don't enjoy it. Like just don't do it, you know? Yeah. I need a, you know what I need? I just need, I need a personal shopper. I don't want to do the shopping. I need like a, you know, and I will be a very nice guy. If it's a young woman who's personal shopping for me, I won't be creepy. I'll just be like, help me out, you know, and I would appreciate that help. Um, But plenty of personal shoppers on Craigslist. Really? Uh huh. See, but that, I don't know. I feel like, why do I feel like anything, any transaction, um, Conducted on Craigslist could go very weird very fast. I think I kind of resist it for that reason, but maybe that's. <laughs> oh no, that's uh, completely warranted. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, when you when you think of yourself and you identify yourself or you talk about yourself in conversation in, in an occupational context, um, what do you lead with? Do you say I work in fashion? Do you say I'm a writer? Like, how do you self-identify? Um, I say I'm a writer. If someone asks what I do, if it's general enough, um, I say I'm a writer. If they're kind of savvy and they know that most people do something for money and then do something else, and they ask, you know, what's your day job or what are you doing for work these days, then depending on my mood, I'll say I work for like a really rich, tyrannical maniac (laughs) or... Like, I'll kind of tell them what on paper I do, which is edit a fashion magazine, a business-to-business fashion magazine. B2B. Yeah. Isn't that what they call it? B2B. Yeah, Uh, yeah. The lingo. Yeah, I know the lingo. Okay, so um, where are you from originally? I'm from a really tiny town in central Texas. Oh, wow. Okay, so what, what town? What's the name of the town? It's called Luling. It's um, a little town that cropped up because of the railroad and because oil was found there. Um, so it's it's an oil town. It's like a mostly economically depressed, like burnout oil town. But <laughs> at one point there was like a boom that was enough to like make people settle it and right. create a town there. Is, yeah. your, is your dad an oil man? My dad is not. We were, like, anomalies in our town because most of the people were working class or ranchers 
um, or own like construction companies and stuff, like really like rugged things. Um, but my parents are both educators. Okay, like what? Like what grade? Um, my mom teaches kindergarten right now. My dad was a geography and history teacher for a long time. He was also an administrator. He was a principal. He was a superintendent. And that really made him miserable because he really loves knowledge and he's like a really gifted teacher. But um, I'm the oldest of seven children. Holy shit. Yeah. So are your parents, are your parents religious? Is this like a religious Texan? Like, uh, I feel like yeah. religious people have more children. Is that, a, is that an unfair <laughs> simplification? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it depends on what religion. Yeah. But most of them do encourage you to be fruitful and multiply. Right. Um, so what, and, yeah, what, what's the religion? Were, what were you raised in? Oh, God. Okay, so my mom was raised Catholic, and um, in the, I feel like I always have to, like, explain what kind of Catholicism she grew up with and I partially grew up with. Um, it's, like, a really interesting mixture of, I think, some indigenous mystical religious traditions and Catholicism. Um, my mom is Mexican-American, and her she has six sisters and three brothers. Um, and her six sisters are like, they're almost like mystics. Like, I, I grew up with a lot of um, concern for ojo and... What's you know, that? The evil eye. Okay, yeah, the evil eye. And so, wait, yeah. and your mom's Mexican-American, so like, is she first generation? Did she come over, or did her parents come over, or what happened? Um, her, okay, so her mother is Spanish, and so her family, their immigration story is a little more hazy, um, but they had been in Texas for a while, so I'm not sure exactly when they immigrated. My grandfather immigrated when he was a child, so she was born in the U.S., okay. so second generation, yeah. I think, well, actually, I think that makes her first. I first no, first generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. first born. yeah. All right. So she's Mexican. So she's her mother Spanish. Her dad is Mexican. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then he came over, and then the Spanish mother had been here for a while. They have your mom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and your mom. Yeah, your, your mom grows up. In, she grows up in Texas. Meets your dad. Yeah. Okay. And she, yeah. So she wasn't. Yeah. She grew up Catholic, and I don't think it's hard when you're Catholic to really get attached to your religion because it's like enforced on you and it's like very methodical and you know so she wasn't like really that she didn't feel beholden to it and then she met my dad in college and they started going to this little bible study that turned into this presbyterian church um a very orthodox presbyterian church and that's the church that all of my siblings, except for my younger brother and sister, who are much younger, they're like 15 and 13 right now, um, They, my parents converted to Catholicism, or in my mom's case, reconverted, and so they were like baptized in the Catholic Church and everything. Why did they convert back? They, they got disillusioned with Presbyterianism? It was a really strange, actually very formative experience 
for me and a really strange experience for my family. Um, we were really active in that Presbyterian church. I was like the most devout kid ever. I was the youngest to ever go through this really intense um, process of being like confirmed as a true member of the church, which requires you to study a lot and like meet with the elders who are these middle-aged white men who... It's always the men. Yeah, it's always the men, <laughs> the keepers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was like really into it. And then I think I remember uh, our really beloved minister like lost his faith was very like diary of a country priest like he was this gentle wonderful intelligent man and he abruptly like lost his faith why what was it nobody knows and i was only 10 years old so i couldn't really figure it out um i don't know they may know we've never really talked about it get get your parents on the phone let's do a (laughs) three-way (laughs) call So, okay. and you wait, and you said you were the, you said that you were the, uh, oldest child in your family, <laughs> oldest yeah. of seven. Well, that makes sense though, that you're like the high achieving, earnest, uh, earnestly devout. I mean, that, that kind of fits the profile of the oldest child. Yeah. I was high achieving until my parents converted to Catholicism and then I went buck wild and I, <laughs> oh, I could tell a really, really do please. Story. Yeah, please do. All right, here it goes. Um, so I was so decentered that, you know, and this corresponded with me, like, becoming a teenager. So I became really, really angsty and, of course, started reading poetry and started writing, you know, E.E. E. Cummings poems all over my wall with Edna St. Vincent Millay poems, which is odd. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember this horrible traumatic thing i was i was so angry at my parents that i was like you know what i really hate and i think i was like picking up on like some sexism like in the church that i left and the church that i attend i was like i really just hate that like virginity is commodified of course i didn't like think about that like that but i like vowed to like have sex with my boyfriend and so i did and then i like wrote about it in my journal and I wrote, like, I hate my parents. Like, I can't believe they switched religions on me. I had sex with my boyfriend just because I hate them, not because I love him. No reason. And then my mom read my diary. Oh. <laughs> and what happened? Oh, God. Okay, so I was in middle school, and my dad was my principal. Wait, so how old were you when you lost your virginity? This was, like, 13? I was 14. Okay. So, no, I wasn't in middle school. I was in high school. Like a, freshman. a freshman, yeah. Well, yeah, my dad, like, called me over the loudspeaker because the high school and the middle school were right across the street from each other and said that I needed to, like, be taken home. And so he drove home, and there was my mom with my diary and, like, tears in her eyes. Oh super traumatic. Oh, my God. Like, so, I'm okay with it, but I, I feel bad, like, telling people this, like, ugly story. No, nah, it's a common story. But, like, it is, like, it does raise interesting questions. I, I'm thinking of my own daughter, but it's like, you know, as a parent, no, as a, no, as a parent, um, you know, uh, your child writes a diary and you find the diary. It's got to be, it's got to be hard to resist the urge to read it. But is that, that's a violation of your privacy or do parents have a right okay. to read, read their children's diaries? Yeah. 
now if your kids are doing anything, you just find out about it online, I guess. Right, exactly. You just Snapchat with them or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Okay. That could go really wrong. Okay, so okay, so you're turning to poetry. You're doing a lot of things that normal adolescents do. But one thing I want to ask, because I was raised Catholic, I never really took to it, but I was, you know, immersed in it or whatever as a kid. And um, and then I don't know anything about Presbyterianism, but I was always figuring that they're relatively similar. Like, why was the switch so traumatic? Like, was is the dogma that much different? They're so different. Yeah. In fact, our doctrine was very anti-Catholic. I mean, it was like explicitly anti-Catholic. Why? What's the um, about like in in regards to what? The Orthodox thing was about like having no representations of any deities or any figures in the Bible. There was no music. Um, it was just a very stripped down, very Puritan kind of setup, and um, it was extremely logocentric. It was about treating the Bible as like something that you can unlock through the language, like putting all this emphasis on the meaning of the word. Um, and, you know, the Catholic Church is just more about, like, ritual and, like, you know, getting the right sacraments and, you know, confessing your sins and stuff. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I guess so. I mean, that's interesting. So Presbyterianism, like, they're really diving into the language of the Bible and trying to parse meaning? Yeah, like there's actual interpretation happening. Okay. Like the Catholic Church, like you don't even have a Bible when you're in Mass. You know, you have the missals and the other thing. Right. The hymnal. The hymnal. Yeah. We had a but we had no piano or any instruments. Why? Like music is like footloose? Like you don't want to do any of that? Like no dancing? <laughs> you like didn't want to have fun. You weren't supposed to enjoy yourself. It was supposed to be like very austere and meditative. Okay. So what about what about your? I mean, you're doing this adolescent poetry thing. Uh, you lose your virginity, and then you're uh, you're disillusioned with Catholicism. Um, like, wh- how did you know? How did your relationship with religion, ch- you know, change as you got older and moved on with your life? Like, where are you with it now? Like, what happened over the years? Um, I you know, I pretty much became an atheist and, you know, read existential philosophy in college. And I don't know, it's interesting. I I don't want to be apathetic. And I sometimes think that agnosticism is just the same thing as like spiritual laziness. And I don't want to be spiritually lazy. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely at some sort of impasse because I think, like, the book that is coming out in April, Tinder Data. Um, I like that title, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. you say data or data? Uh, I think I say data. Me too. Yeah. Good. My team. All right. Tinder Data. So Tinder Data coming out in, in when? The spring? It's, yeah, uh, end of March, early April. Okay. So... Uh, but you were saying about religion and about being at an impasse because, you know, like when it comes to atheism, you call your I've called myself an atheist over the years. I go back and forth like I'm I guess I'm uncomfortable with categorizations like I, I just don't know. I mean, I don't think there's a monotheistic sky god. I don't think there's a god like puppeteering the thing. Um, but I think that like I think that like people who claim to understand who or what God is um, are often absurd or at least like just like mistaken or you know 
whatever. And then people, but people who deny the existence of God don't really know maybe what they're denying. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I find myself recoiling from any kind of certainty. Uh, I'm with you. Yeah. Okay. So that, that, that strikes me as like the kind of humility that um, would maybe be advisable or like something to aspire to. And then the other thing though, is that like, I'm very active um, and very interested in matters spiritual. Like I feel like, I feel like some kind of, you know, some forms of atheism and like usually the people who are chirping the loudest about it, um, it's almost like a, a kind of fundamentalism. You know what I'm saying? It Like it mirrors fundamental religious totally. belief it in a way. the dogma. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like there's a part of me that's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm really curious about this stuff. I'm like, what's the best way to live? And I think as I get older, or at least at the phase that I'm in now, I'm less interested in belief than I am in practice. And I'm less interested in, um, y- you know, philosophy or what is it? Uh, what's the word for religion? Theology. I guess I'm interested yeah. in some theology, but I'm less interested in like that big picture stuff, like afterlife than I am in just like uh, suffering and how to like um, handle suffering and alleviate hopefully yeah. suffering. That's what interests me. Like how do we live in yeah. peace with one another? How do we uh, love each other? Well, how do we be good people? And uh, what does that even mean? Like those sorts of questions, practical stuff is of greater interest to me than like, you know, what is God? What happens after we die? And, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Those things that seem to kind of come out of fear more than anything. And that, and which are, you know, largely unknowable or at least partially unknowable. Um, you know, like you can go round and round, but I mean, some things I just think are beyond human, uh, the human brain, at least right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I've always been able to be okay with that, and I think partially I have Catholic, or like my family's Catholicism to think for that because it was very mystical. It was very like like tactile in a way, like you could smell it and touch it and see it, and that had been missing. And yeah, I mean, I I would only consider Christianity again, you know, maybe in the form of something like liberation theology, which is like a nice form of like class warfare almost. Yeah. What um, is, what is liberation but, theology? I don't mean to put you on the spot because it's probably some big yeah. couple. What is it? Oh, I mean, I'll probably like explain it really impartially, but um, it's a sort of sect of not a sect. It's not a sect of anything, but it's an iteration, I guess, of Catholicism that is not so much concerned with the precepts of Rome, but, um, actually uh, implementing, like, the politics of Jesus, which, you know, were almost, like, very Marxist. Um, right. In poor countries, especially in Latin American countries. Um, yeah. Because they already have that Catholic basis. Yes. Yeah, which see- is interesting because they were colonized by Catholicism, and now Catholicism is sort of helping decolonize them. Yeah, no, it's interesting, too, like when I think about um, changes that need to happen in the world if the if humanity is to continue to survive, you know, like uh, like the move towards justice or whatever it is uh, in whatever realm that it happens to occupy. And I think about these huge institutions and how they can often work against that kind of justice, you know, like uh, Catholicism, it's easy to point to like all of its ills. <laughs> Um, you know, it's got, there's plenty of literature on that. I don't want to like rehash it all, but we all know what's been going on the last several years. And, um, 
you know, with priests and all that kind of stuff. So there's plenty of darkness there, but there is a part of me that thinks because these institutions are so large and are so entrenched that like, um, you could work within them to affect change more effectively than you could by trying to go without them because there's like, there's, there's community already there. There's organization already there. There's like a place for people to go. Do you know what I'm saying? Like trying, trying to organize people is a pain in the ass. Like you got to get everybody in the same building and you got to know everybody and keep email lists and whatnot. And like, at least (laughs) the church, you have a bit of a head start. So maybe the answer is to like, try to start like revolutions within these existing structures or something. Right. Yeah. No, that would be my dream. I think so much about how, female-dominated the Catholic Church actually is for an institution that doesn't let women be, like, nominal leaders. Like, it actually is completely girded and supported by women. The nuns. I mean, they're the, they're the you know... I've read a lot of stuff about... Um, I don't know. There's been some interesting uh, essays and articles written in the past several years about the... Uh, like, I don't even know what you call it. Is it the nun lobby? There's an organization, and I'm forgetting the name of it or the acronym, oh. but... Um, you know, the, the nuns are, they're starting to kind of assert their power more. I think they're making a push. I hope they do more. I hope they're more, um, vocal about it because it's just, that's a part of Catholicism that never made any sense to me. When I think about my mom or my sisters who are, who continue to like go to church and stuff, I'm like, how do you even go? Like, how can you be a part of some organization that won't even treat you on equal footing? That seems crazy to me. Yeah. But I don't know. People look overlook stuff. So um, okay, so Texas high school, you're a wild child, which I think is a little bit unusual for a uh, eldest. Usually, the eldest child isn't wild. Like, how wild did it get? Mm-hmm. Oh, it got bad. You know, I was I spent a few nights in jail. You know, for what? <laughs> uh, I like had like a shoplifting problem for a while, and you know, MIPs like drinking underage, like petty stuff mostly. Right. But I had I had a legitimate rebellious phase. Okay. That's good. I mean we you know. right. not even a phase. It was almost like an awakening. A decade. <laughs> like, yeah. Or or I think really a kind of consciousness raising that like I'm still living in. Okay. I get that. And so um, what, how did your parents handle it? Like, have, like, you know, were like they, were you able to maintain a decent relationship with them? Yeah, it was really bad and then it got better and yeah. Okay. And so did, <laughs> okay. did you graduate high school? You did. You went on to college, so you, you didn't. I did. Yeah. I got really lucky and I went to a kind of good college. Which is? Um, it's this private liberal arts university in Indiana called DePaul University. Yeah, I've been. I'm from Indiana, so I've been to DePaul. I, I, oh, really? It's, yeah, it's tiny, it's super tiny. So tiny, yeah. It's Which like a, was good because I was used to really tiny. Okay, so you, well, what brought you there from Texas? I mean, to DePaul of all places. It's so bizarre. I don't know. Um, I was always a good writer, even though I failed math a lot, and I didn't end up having a very good GPA. Um, they, I guess because it was a liberal arts school, they really considered our application essay a lot more, and so um, they gave me a really good scholarship. And I found it because I think they had this big push to like um, find minorities from, like, other parts of the country to diversify. They're really, really into their diversification of their 
um, student population. So I think I sort of fell into that as well. Yeah, and like I was going to ask you about your like heritage, and you have Spanish and Mexican um, yeah, roots. Yeah, my dad. What is Why, your, yeah, my dad is Scottish. Your dad's Scottish. So how do you? How have you identified? Like, you know what I'm saying? How do you identify today? Do you feel at all, or is there one that feels primary or more close to your heart? Um. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think it feels more close to my heart to feel like a brown person because I also grew up with like a lot of class disadvantages and. The people I sort of, I don't know, cared about the most, who nurtured me when I was young, like, were uh, my mother's family. I mean, not that my father's family, like, wasn't great. Um, but I, I am white, and I can't, like, there's nothing I can do. Like, I look white, I have white privilege, I have a lot of educational privilege. So I would feel like in my heart, and I talk about this in my book, too, like, I, it's easier for me to feel like my mother's family, but I have lived in the world as a white person. Yeah, that's interesting to kind of have both. I mean, I guess you have, yeah, I mean, you have like the outer experience of being a white person, but maybe the inner experience of being a brown person. Is that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and then you get to DePaul and, um, you're finally, you know, you're out of this small town in Texas. I'm, I'm imagining it was like nice to be out on your own and like in a new place and meeting new people. Like, was it a good college experience? It was a good college experience. It was also hard. Um, I learned a lot. I'd never seen really wealthy people before. Um, so it kind of, opened up my world a little. Um, like, who did you meet? Give me some Give me some uh, anecdotes. Like, what was, like, you know, what kind of people were you meeting at the poll? They were kids from Chicago land area, suburbs. Um, I don't know why they were so rich, but they were really rich. <laughs> and, you know, they all had eating disorders. And, yeah, I remember getting invited to, like, a friend's house that was actually like a huge mansion like had a basketball court in it and like he didn't you know even think to mention that and <laughs> you know just like <laughs> just being exposed to like true wealth for the first time like you go from your town which is like pretty economically um consistently poor middle class and then to see like oh some people in this country that i live in are living like royalty um so that was interesting like culturally i definitely experienced some culture shock and like didn't quite know my place um and immediately gravitated to and these people gravitated to me actually maybe first um kids who were there because of this program called posse that like sends inner city kids of like underprivileged backgrounds to these private liberal arts schools, like in the middle. It's of called the US. Po- it's called posse. <laughs> yeah, they like they send them together, thinking they'll have a better chance staying in school if they have their friends with them. But it really just makes them like a bigger target to be outsiders. Well, yeah, because the thing about it is that like I'm imagining that like if you have a group 
and you're, you can kind of like tribalize that way. It makes it harder actually for you to integrate and meet people. And do you know what I'm saying? Like if you have a tribe, then you don't have any real reason to go to the parties and meet exactly. new people. Yeah. And that's what ended up happening. So you were just kind of an outsider hanging with the posse? Yeah. Well, yeah. So I found the posse. So then I sort of latched onto the posse. Um, but then at the same time, I could kind of move between that world. And, and these are people who had like, you know, so much knowledge of the world that I didn't have because they'd grown up in urban areas with museums and like more exposure, I guess. And so they were like flying communist flags in front of their dorm rooms and stuff. Um, so I learned a lot from them and I learned a lot from the professors who were really progressive and liberal, even though the students were all from these really rich um, conservative families, as I'm sure, like, you know. Sure. Um, the culture there is very homogeneous. Lots of frats, lots of fraternities. Like, uh, like that's oh, what I, I just remember, like, it's like a big, it, it, like, what I remember of the school is that it's like a big square with, like, fraternity houses all around it. Might. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's basically, like, Greek life and then, like, what you do when you're not, like, partying. Which some people, I don't know, some people, like, really, really thrive there, and it, like, really destroyed a lot of people. I mean, like, any place, of course. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, for, almost for the kids who had come from privilege and, like, were going there because, like, their parents and their grandparents had gone there, it proved harder because they also had to be in fraternities, and it was just, like... Bedlam, you know, they could get away with anything, and they had no coping skills, and so they just like didn't make it, you know, to class. Of course, they graduated because you know they always seem to be okay. But like for um, a lot of the kids who were coming from completely different contexts, it really was a good experience because the professors were, like I said, like really liberal and. It, yeah, there was this weird division where it was like people who were there to learn um, under the uh, the posse program. Uh, no, it was like the posse program and like people who like were really taking their studies seriously were sort of supported by like I mean it's a wealthy school it's like got these wealthy trustees and these wealthy benefactors. So they were supported by these people who were in class next to them, but who were living completely different lives, like just like partying and like didn't really care. Right. They were like, they were, they're going to yeah. be, they're going to be okay after college, no matter what, like that kind exactly. of thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like okay. somebody's friend was going to give them a job. Yeah. So, okay. So you, were you writing poetry and, and um, thinking of yourself in writerly terms in college? Yeah, I was, because um, I knew that was why I was there. My first meeting with my advisor was um, a conversation about my application essay, and she said that she had been in the uh, room when they were looking at my application and that they decided, based on my um, writing, that they really wanted me there. So I felt you know, charmed and I felt validated. Like I really you know, had a gift and that's what I was there to do. So would you majored in what English? Yeah, I actually majored in creative writing fiction. 
Oh, okay. I didn't know they even offered that there. So you do that, and then um, you're out in four years. You get, like, I'm assuming you did well in school or well enough to get through, and then um, and then what? I went straight to NYU because I had a lot of really supportive professors at DePaul who were like, this is your calling, this is what you need to do. I think first I was a communications major, but then I had a professor who was like, you should just, you're a good writer, you should just be like an English writing major, and then you can do whatever you want, journalism, communications, like when you finish school. But then I started getting like more embedded like with like the writers in the English program and the professors were really like pro MFA, like go get your MFA somewhere. Um, and I really wanted to, I had written a book of short stories and I really wanted to go to, um, Wait, as, a, the, as an undergrad, uh, as an undergrad you'd written as an undergrad. Yeah. It, it was like my thesis, but I hope to keep working on it and to publish it. Okay. And then you said something about the university of Texas or did I mishear you? Uh, no, that's right. I wanted to go to grad school at the University of Texas um, at the Michener Center. Right. Which, you know, is a nice situation. Yeah, it's like a, it was like a three-year program. and Yeah, fully funded three-year program plus a stipend. Um, so I applied there. I'd started writing poetry, but I really thought I would write stories. Um but I loved poetry so much that I applied for an MFA at NYU. And I got into NYU. And so that brought me to New York. And how was that, how was that transition from, uh, what is it, Greencastle, Indiana? Is that where DePaul is? Am I yeah, it's in Greencastle, Indiana, which is a small town. Tiny. Um, not, yeah, tiny. I mean, well, bigger than the town I grew up in, but um, not dissimilar. Except that the university is its own world, like this fortress of like wealth and you know hedonism, <laughs> unchecked. Hedonism. Yeah, and hedonism. Oh my gosh, yes. The future, um, the future bankers with private tailors of America, like you know. Yeah, I really wish I could like track some of them down and <laughs> interview them. Yeah, who knows what they're doing right now? But uh, you. So, what about this transition to New York? I got to feel like that must have been a big. Uh, crazy experience. It wasn't. It was actually like really blessed. I think um, I spent the summer in Montana because I wanted to go. I don't know. I'd never really traveled alone, and so I wanted to just go do something um, far away from any place where I might end up, and so I went to the opposite coast, and I actually reunited with a friend of mine who I'd gone on a, a like a student independent study um, travel scholarship thing to Paris with in Rome, and so we met up in Montana, and I spent a really, really crazy summer there. It was only a summer but so much happened. Like what? Um, when, where were you in Montana? I was in St. Mary. So, um, you know, right in the Rocky Mountains, um, Glacier National Park. Okay. Yeah. So I was working actually for 
a resort right outside of the national park. And it was so strange. It was this really old resort that had been owned by a family that was very accepted by the Native American community there. It's um, also the Blackfeet Indian Reservation is there. Um, But then, like, ownership changed, like, right before I got there. And it was being run by these, like, Las Vegas Playboy mobster dudes. (laughs) Of course. I mean, really, every visual that came to mind just now for you is true. They were riding around in limos and, you know, just doing coke and, like, building, like, harebrained, like, teepees with flat-screen TVs and totally, like, exploiting the Native American people for their labor. So I became, like... I don't know. I went into this like kind of weird vigilante mode, um, and I was working at the grocery store at the resort and with the landscapers a little bit, who were all these like rugged Montana boys. But I really started to make friends with um, some of the people I would see at the bar on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation. Wait, you're drinking at a bar on the reservation? Yeah, it was it was the only bar that was like within driving distance. Okay. So, yeah. So what happened? What happened? Did you start a revolution? I wish I had. I couldn't start a revolution, but I did fuck them over as much as I could. Okay. So I would steal a lot of stuff or I would help my friends steal a lot of stuff from the grocery store. <laughs> like I would <laughs> they would come in and buy a pack of cigarettes and beer and a tent, and I would only charge them for, like, three apples <laughs> because I could bring up whatever I wanted on the cash register. Yeah, I had a buddy who did that in college. Like, he worked at the liquor store, and, I mean, we'd just give away, like, thousands of dollars of product. And I guess when you're the cashier, I mean, maybe they have more sophisticated ways of monitoring, <laughs> monitoring inventory, but if you're in some mountain town, it's probably pretty easy to do. Right. I mean, eventually we did find out, but I was gone by then. Um, okay. So what? What ha- like you said, a lot of stuff happened. Is that what you were referring to? Like all just the, the craziness of these people who own the resort, or did anything else big happen in Montana? Yeah. Okay. Let me try to finish this. Um, okay. So that happened. Um, I got really attached to this bartender at the um, on the Indian reservation. Um, what you at the were bar, dating, dating somebody or just friends? I, I, well, yeah, then we started dating. Then he asked me to marry him. Then I said yes. Whoa. And I know. And then I got really scared and realized that I needed to go to New York and go to grad school. Um, and I also maybe considered going to Thailand with some people I'd met. And Like to do I, what? To like, to, like, live in an intentional community or something? Like, what were you going to do in Thailand? Yeah, just to travel. Oh, I think. Okay. Just I was just going to, like, put off grad school and being an adult for a bit longer. Right. Um, but I felt very called to New York. I got an apartment with my cousin who lives here. She went to NYU for undergrad. Um, and so we got an apartment and I basically, well, actually, in reality, spent all of the money that I made that entire summer on just the broker's fee and the first and last month's rent for an apartment <laughs> in Slope. 
<laughs> so I was completely, completely broke and had no way to get there. Um, and I overheard uh, a guy who I hadn't really hung out with while I was there. Um, but we all lived, like all the employees, we like lived in this village, like kind of like dirty dancing. Like we all lived together <laughs> in a little shack. <laughs> right. But yeah, but I heard this guy saying like he was going to leave for Pittsburgh the next morning. And I was like, can I come with you? Like, I don't have any money, but if you can take me to Pittsburgh, I'll get a bus, like, somehow to New York. And he was like, yeah, okay, sure. Um, and I had said yes to this marriage proposal, so I really wanted to get away. And also I felt like I was going to get caught soon, like, for letting my friend steal a bunch of stuff from the grocery store. Yeah. But it turned out that he actually had been doing the same thing, and he had the same worry, and that's why he wanted to leave suddenly. And then he injured himself in some kind of drunken accident and couldn't go to the hospital because the closest hospital was the reservation hospital, and there was some problem with, like, admitting him because he didn't belong to the reservation. So he showed up at my door and was like, if you can help me, like, take care of this, like, gash in my hand and also take care of this dog that I adopted, then I will drive you to New York. And he did. And we had a great time and we became friends and we camped everywhere and it was amazing. And then I ended up on my doorstep in Brooklyn. Wow. That's awesome. And what about the guy you were engaged to? That just fell apart and he was heartbroken? I just, I sent him, but I didn't even say bye to him. I just, you know, eventually later wrote him like... I'm sorry. And he kind of understood. Right. Wow. Heartbreaker. No, not habitually. <laughs> um, but I'm just curious about him. Like, was he uh, was he Native American? He was. He was. Okay. Worked the bar on the, on the reservation. Yep. You're the one that got away. No. <laughs> no? It was, we, did, we only knew each other for... A but, month or okay. two. Yeah. yeah, a whirlwind, yeah. a whirlwind courtship. Um, yeah, it was of course I was saying yes to like, yeah, I'm going to stay in this mountain town and you know live like I'm. I don't know. It was so beautiful. It was like it really did like. It's intoxicating. Get, it almost like yeah, it was like being on hallucinogenic drugs all the time, and I don't even like hallucinogenic drugs. You have you done them before? Yeah, it's like, you know, not really my thing. You have a bad trip? Of course. Okay. Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, some people, I feel like they just, every time they try them, it just turns dark and things get bad. But for most people, it's like... Yeah, a, I, mean, a, it's yeah. I really like shrooms, but, like, I'm, I don't know. I've had, like, other bad trips that, like, I've never done LSD, for example. Okay. What did you have a bad trip on? Oh, my gosh. Like, peyote? Um, did you do peyote on the reservation? <laughs> I didn't. Oh, okay. I should have. Okay. Well, I don't even know if the black it wasn't, it wasn't the desert, so. Right. Yeah. Um, I I don't know. I remember, like, my, for, oh, this is bad, my first day of college, I wanted to buy some weed, so I found, uh, me and this other person in my dorm found a guy who was selling weed, and we went, like, behind our dorm to smoke it, and immediately it started to feel really weird. And I think it was like PCP or something. No, I feel yeah, like I feel like that's like, an urban legend. It actually happened to you. <laughs> I think it did actually happen to me. I mean, it was something really bad, and I don't know. Maybe I was just thinking of that. Or it was just, know, or it was, or it was just like really strong weed. 
No, no, no. I was I was such a pothead. Like I I don't think I would have had that reaction. It was speedy. I, I couldn't sleep for three days. Oh shit. Yeah. I was like I was paranoid that I like wasn't a person and that I'd never been born and so I was like trying to remember being born so I could know that I existed and this was like the main thing that occupied my mind for three days. <laughs> sounds it sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> But I don't know what it was, so I can't say what I tripped really bad on. But Welcome to college. I know. What an introduction. <laughs> so, okay. So, New York City. You've been there ever since. I have. Yeah. I haven't left. So, and you got in the, and the MFA program, did its thing. You feel like you got a lot out of it? I got some good friendships out of it right um poetry relationships i think like brenda shaughnessy was really like a big sister to me um we worked on an anthology together and she helped me stay in the city when i was having a really hard time finding a job um so she was a professor of mine who was really encouraging i mean everyone was really encouraging and supportive but I don't know. I, I don't think a, an MFA was really what I needed at that time. I, I was really probably looking more to study literature. And so um, the theory class that I took is the one that stayed the, stayed with me the most. Yeah, well, you were also pretty young. I mean, you went basically went straight from undergrad to getting your MFA and like without much of a gap. Right. I was 22. Oh, my God. Yeah. So... All right, so you did that, and then you get out, and you have, what, an MFA in poetry? Yes. And you're suddenly like, okay, shit, what the fuck am I going to do <laughs> with this MFA in poetry? I mean, did you think, were you thinking along academic terms, or were you thinking, I've just got to find a job anywhere, or did you think fashion? I was thinking I would teach. Okay. But I was open to anything. I really wanted to teach, um, and I did. And after a few years of adjuncting, I was like, oh, this is unsustainable. Yeah, that's just brutal. The adjuncting thing is a racket. I did that for five years. I was like, "It is. It's, it's a racket." Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like free labor. You know, like they're basically giving getting you for free. They don't have to. You know, I don't know. I could I could rant about how underpaid teachers are. Um, you know, know, especially at that in that level. Yeah. Well, we need to refuse to do it. Exactly. So you did that, and then you finally said, "Okay, I actually need to make some money," and then you started working in fashion. Yeah, I did, hoping to make money, but I didn't. Um, and so I quit that, not after very long, actually. I think I was only doing that for, like, five months. And then um, I worked, like, various administrative jobs. I, I don't keep jobs for very long. Um, and then I supplemented administrative jobs with tutoring. Uh, I worked in PR a little bit, did some copywriting here and there. And so what do you, what do you want, what do you want thing, what do you want to do? Like, do you want to just continue to publish poetry? Um, do you want to write, uh, novels? Do you want to become eventually like an academic and somehow get a tenure track job? Like, do you have any sense of like your end game, like what you're, what you're shooting for? Or are you sort of just making it up as you go along? Mm, I'm still making it up. Um, I know what I would, I have a much better idea of what I would like to do and what I'm actually good at. Which is, Um, which is? I think I'm really good at teaching, but I'm not 
going to be an adjunct. <laughs> it right. was refused. So someone's going to have to. I've taught in other capacities. I taught for Brooklyn Poets, which is an organization kind of like Sack of Street Writers. Yeah. Like yeah. Um, is that it? Is what it? Um, no, I'm just asking myself. Oh okay. What well, I taught weekend program that I like. Like, would you ever consider teaching high school, or you want to be like a college professor? That's like the deal. I, I need to teach people who like already kind of know what they think. Okay. College professor. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to teach. Like, that's the thing. I think teaching at a graduate level would be fun because then you're getting people who have sort of gotten through. They've separated the wheat from the chaff. Like, they've gotten through their <laughs> their core curriculum or whatever, and they're done fucking around, and they want to actually focus. Yeah. And, like, you don't have to teach them anything new. You just have to kind of, like, teach them to be critical and just, like, open up the knowledge they already have. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, um, if, there, if, there, if, there, if there are any university department chairs listening to this episode, you could please hire, <laughs> please hire Monica. <laughs> hire me. I'm a really good teacher. Yeah. Well, the thing that nobody tells you, I and mean, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get this MFA in creative writing, or I'm going to get this MFA in poetry, or whatever it is, and then I'm going to go teach. And it's like, you know, those teaching jobs are competitive. It's uh, There's there's too many mouths to feed, you know? It's not like they're yeah. just handing out those jobs on the street corner. Right. And if you want to stay in New York, then you're really limited. Yeah. Well, so, but and you're going to continue to write poetry. Um, are you working on anything other than poetry as far as your writing projects go? Um, yeah, I, I actually don't think, I mean, I'm sure I'll always write poetry, but um, the idea was to write a novel. That's always been the sort of, um, I don't know, holy grail for me. Like, I really uh, want to develop the project that I started writing in undergrad, the book of short stories, and maybe link that and maybe turn it into a novel. So I'm always working on prose, but never, ever finishing it because I don't have time. Yeah. Um, I think maybe that's part of why I started writing poetry in the first place. Um, well, you know, I talked to Amy, I talked to Amy Bender on this show, like, and she had just had, like, she just had twins. She was like writing in 10 minute bursts, like, you know, and you just, uh, I, I yeah. mean, I mean, it was inspiring and it was like instructive because I was like, oh, you know what? Like the time thing, because I feel you on that. Like, it's like, when do people find the time to like consistently do all this with all that life entails, unless you're like independently wealthy or, right. you know, you have a spouse who can really make things where it's just it's so difficult to do that. And, and then also knowing how little money there tends to be in it uh, and then having like, a, I have a, I have a child. So it's like, how do I feel good about myself or spending time on this when I know it's not probably going to lead to any kind of. Uh, financial reward, you know, in terms of, so it's like, you know, trying to meet all that, I completely hear you, but I feel like, um, the writers who wind up making their way through just bend their lives to fit their work in whatever way they have to, even if it's like a 10 minute session, like four times a day or whatever. Right. Yeah. That's what happens. Yeah. You do it because you have to. Yep. So you're working on this. You have this collection of shorts. You're going to potentially link them. You're publishing a yeah. new collection of poetry, um, mm-hmm. and then and you're young too, right? You're, you're young. No, I'm not young. Come on, may I ask? How no, old? I'm like, you're in your thirties. No, I'm not in my thirties yet. You're in your twenties. I'm in my twenties, just barely. I'm you're really young. You've got so much time. You're February. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. yeah. And I also really want to write a uh, criticism, and I think that's probably what I'll focus on for the next year. 
All right. Was well, there anything we didn't get to? Any other big like life experiences that we should be, uh, you know, excavating here? Um, I think we've covered some major ones. Okay. What? Near, near marriage, uh, hitchhiking, jail time. God, bad trips. God, yeah, really bad trips. <laughs> what did you do during your bad trip? Were you like rocking in a corner? Did you like, you know, get naked and walk I down was... Main Street, or like, what happened? No, I'm never that exhibitionistic about my trips. Um, I had I had a friend who did that incidentally at Indiana University. So I, I'm drawn. Oh, yeah, like, really? Up in Bloomington? Yeah. Okay. Walked like completely nude down the center of Kirkwood Avenue, which is like where all the bars are. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Wow. Did he do it with some aplomb or no? Just gone crazy? by himself on acid, <laughs> got naked. And, like, I guess the cops, like, eventually, like, someone found his clothes. Like, some student who didn't know him found his clothes, including his wallet. And his clothes were folded, like, neatly. As if, like, you know, as if, like, like retail-level folding. You know, like, he had, like, folded his clothes with, like, great precision, left his wallet behind, and was just walking around naked. And then um, the cops arrested him or, like, you know, came up and they're like, buddy, you know, what are you doing? And they were like, are you on anything? And reflexively, he said no. He was like, no, I'm not on anything. I'm not on drugs, you know, because he didn't want to tell cops that he was on drugs. And that was just how he, like, was hardwired. Um, and so I guess by state law, when you find somebody, like, you know, who's acting that crazy and they say they're not on drugs, then you have to uh, commit them to an uh, insane asylum for, like, three days of evaluation. Oh. <laughs> so he wound, yeah, he, wound up, like, going to a, uh, he wound up going to an insane asylum for, like, three days and then, like, called his roommates. They were wondering where the hell he was. there? Yeah, no, he had just been, like, sitting in a circle with actual crazy people on, like, folding chairs with, like, a shrink leading, like, group therapy for, like, three days. And then finally he got to make a phone call, and he's like, can you bring me some Can you bring me some clothes? <laughs> but I imagine, like, he was tripping for a while while he was in an insane asylum. Oh, yeah, he was, he was forcibly, he, 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 no, he was forcibly restrained. I want to say he was, like, either straitjacketed or, like, tied to a table, you know, like, that kind of thing. Wow, what not, a nightmare. Okay, all the more reason to never do LSD. Oh, yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, like at least not that I mean, much. it's great for some people. Yeah. If, you, if you have, like, a babysitter, you know what you're doing. But uh, with you, nothing quite so cinematic. Like, it was just, like, dark thoughts spiraling, who am I, like, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I just, like, rocking, I think, in my bed and sort of, like, getting up and, like, opening the door and then closing the door. And then I think at one point I went and, like, found the guy who... Um, I'd bought weed with and was like, are you feeling this? And he had been, not to the degree that I was, but he was like, yeah, I feel really weird. And I was like, can we just talk about it? And can you stay with me? And did he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, at least he's a nice guy. So the guy who gave you, I mean, this whole thing, like this, this, uh, this, like what I always thought was an apocryphal, like, you know, urban legend about, or suburban legend about laced weed. Like you actually experienced oh, laced it. weed is real. That is not my only experience. That was my first, but not my only one. I always wondered about that. Like who's wasting drugs on lacing p other people's <laughs> weed? Like what the fuck? You know? in, well, I don't know. In the town where I grew up, people would dip their blunts in embalming fluid. Oh, I've heard of that. It sounds gnarly. Yeah. Yeah, really gross. And, um, you know, cough syrup. Uh-huh. Stuff like that, yeah. Okay. Well, that seems like a good place to close. <laughs> <laughs>
I feel like we've come full circle somehow. Um, but I want to tell you, congratulations on the new book, and I want to thank you for spending time talking with me. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. I wish you well, and uh, I just uh, will look forward to uh, you know seeing what's next. I'm imagining that you're going to have. I'm imagining that that novel is going to happen, and I guess we're going to get to read your criticism too at some point. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, just I need to be less poor and have more time. Okay. Well, it's good talking to you, Monica. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Okay, that's Monica McClure, you guys. Her poetry collection is called Tender Data, available now from Birds LLC. You can find her online at monicamcclure.tumblr.com. And uh, she's on the Twitter at McClure. That's four M's, C-C-L-U-R-E, McClure. You know what I'm talking about. Go to Twitter, track her down. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. Don't forget about other people premium. Do that. Sign up for that. Support the program. If you have something to say to me, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com, and I will try to respond, either in writing or on the program. So I think it's going to rain here in Los Angeles. Rain is imminent. It might be raining outside right now. I'm in my garage. The door is closed. It's very dark in here. We need the rain. In Southern California, we're in the midst of a uh, biblical drought. We're running out of water, legitimately, seriously, fundamentally running out of water. There's no water. Almonds are are a problem. It's a water, uh, what do they call it? It's a thirsty crop. It takes a lot of water to make almonds. So what am I doing? I'm sitting here drinking water and eating almonds. That's a joke. I do eat almonds, though. I eat a shit ton of almonds. I'm part of the problem. You're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. The problem is, everybody's part of the problem when it comes to water. I feel bad about water. It sucks to feel bad about water. It's fucking water. How are we running out of water? We're running out of water. That sucks. Please remember that Catherine Mansfield died at age 35 and that Kierkegaard's mom had originally been the family maid. That's it for now. Thanks for listening, you guys. My apologies for the uh, Michiko Kakutani episode. I'm sorry if that fucked with your head. That was the point. It was April Fool's Day. What was I supposed to do? I had no choice. I did have a choice, but I, I decided to ch- I chose to prank you. And I was largely successful. Thanks to Monica McClure for talking to me. Go get her book. Support some uh, poets out there, for God's sakes. Thanks to Birds LLC. Support Birds LLC. I like that they have LLC in their name. They're a limited liability corporation. They don't care. Or maybe LLC stands for something like poetic or something. I'll have to verify that. I hope it's just limited liability company or corporation. I forget what it stands for, but you know what I mean. Yeah, we're an independent press. We're an LLC. We don't give a fuck. All right, I'm done. I'm going to go drink some water. I'm thirsty. I've got to drink water. I have to stay hydrated. I can't be a hero 24 hours a day. (laughs) 